This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers is touting his clean energy plan as a way to reduce dependency on fossil fuels while creating jobs, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. This plan, called for in 2019 via executive order, recommends four major strategies, investing in clean energy technology, reducing energy demand, updating commercial building codes, and addressing transportation. Though this plan would put Wisconsin on a path to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, it is only a recommendation and has no legal binding. Groups like Clean Wisconsin support the plan, noting that Wisconsinites are already seeing effects of climate change such as hotter summers and increased flooding. Madison's Metro Transit is no longer requiring masks on buses and at transit stations. Metro Transit announced this change in policy in a statement Tuesday and said it is working to remove signage on buses and transfer points. On Monday, a federal judge ruled against the Biden administration's executive order that required masks on public transportation. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, public transit was one of the few remaining spaces with a mask mandate, as other spaces have relaxed their rules or let them expire. Masks are also no longer required for riders of the Milwaukee County Transit System and at Mitchell International Airport in Milwaukee. The Madison City Council will have a packed meeting this evening, covering everything from a police body camera pilot program to electing a new council president. Yesterday, WORT spoke with Madison Police Chief Sean Barnes ahead of tonight's vote to implement a pilot program for officers to wear body cameras. The long-discussed measure has been a divisive issue for city leadership and members of the Madison community. Also on tonight's agenda is a vote to finalize the site of a permanent men's homeless shelter in Madison. When Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway first announced the location on Bartillon Drive, some alders held a press conference to admonish the mayor over her lack of communication about this location. Those alders did say, though, that they are supportive of this location. The council will also vote on a new recycling charge for Madison residents intended to cover rising costs. Called the Resource Recovery Charge, it would affect all Madison property owners, costing around $4.10 each month. Tonight's council meeting starts at 6.30. Links and more information are at madison.legistar.com. The Midwest Horse Fair is happening this weekend at the Align Energy Center, and the Dane County Sheriff's Office warns to expect heavy traffic around the area. According to the Wisconsin State Journal, tens of thousands of visitors are expected to arrive during the Friday morning rush hour on the Beltline, with traffic being worse than usual in both directions. Plans for a nine-story and 260-room hotel have now entered the construction phase in downtown Madison. The ceremonial groundbreaking for the Judge Doyle Square development was held at Monona Terrace Convention Center on Monday, reported the Cap Times. Plans for this development have spanned more than three Madison mayors with multiple iterations and developers. The hotel will be located on South Pinckney Street between East Wilson and West Doty Streets. And now for today's COVID numbers, there were 471 new confirmed COVID-19 cases across Wisconsin yesterday, bringing the seven-day average across the state to 647 cases per day over the last week. There were also two confirmed deaths from the virus reported in Wisconsin yesterday. A total of 12,865 people are confirmed to have died from COVID-19 in the state since the pandemic began. Here in Dane County, there were 84 new confirmed COVID-19 cases reported yesterday, with 27 people currently hospitalized from the virus. There were no COVID deaths reported in Dane County yesterday. And now on to today's top stories.
Earlier today, State Attorney General Josh Call gave an update on the Wisconsin Department of Justice's ongoing investigation into abuse by members of clergy in the state. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. State Attorney General Josh Call began the Clergy and Faith Leader Abuse Initiative, a report aiming to gather information on clergy abuse across Wisconsin. One year later, Call has an update. Today we're announcing that we have received over 200 reports uh, from people around the state of Wisconsin uh, providing information uh, about over 150 uh, alleged abusers. And 51 of the people who are reporting, so a quarter, Uh, are reporting for the first time they've ever previously reported. The goal of the report, Call says, is to create a full picture of clergy sexual abuse in Wisconsin. With every report, a team consisting of a victim advocate, an investigator, and a prosecutor review the case and assess what steps can be taken. A lot of the reports, Call says, are from instances that happened outside the statute of limitations. In many cases, he says, the alleged abuser has already passed on. These reports are still helpful to the initiative as it helps the attorney general's office to create a full picture of clergy abuse. So far, there has been one arrest made from a report against a camp counselor who was accused of sexually assaulting a child at a Washara County church camp in 2009. That case is still ongoing. Whether charges are brought forward or not, Call says that there's still a lot of value in reporting clergy abuse. Once a report is filed, the person who files the report is then connected with local support services. Eventually, it will help them to create a larger report down the road for the attorney general's office to potentially make recommendations on how to prevent future instances of clergy abuse. The report has thus far gathered 51 previously unreported incidents where neither law enforcement nor religious authorities were notified of the abuse. Call says that this is proof that the initiative is working as intended. Um, Those reports are are a critical part of our review for uh, several different reasons. One is If there's information that uh, could potentially lead to a criminal prosecution, um, we are prioritizing that and working with uh, local law enforcement uh, to follow up. Um, Secondly, we want to make sure that we are connecting survivors with services, particularly uh, people who haven't received them before. And so uh, seeing so many people report for the first time uh, is encouraging in, in that respect as well. And then last, we want to get a comprehensive understanding of this issue in Wisconsin. Last year, Indigenous citizens of Wisconsin called on the Attorney General to expand the scope of his report to include a full investigation into clergy abuse at Wisconsin residential schools. Residential schools were set up in the late 1800s and worked to strip Indigenous children of their language and cultural identity. Shortly after, Call encouraged those who faced abuse at the schools to file a report, though has not yet opened a full investigation. In January, the group Nate's Mission, a worldwide group dedicated to ending clergy abuse, delivered several boxes of documents related to cover-ups related to clergy abuse in Wisconsin. They say that the Green Bay Diocese destroyed evidence of clergy abuse. Nate's mission said that they have been in contact with many of those who have reported to the general attorney's office and that they will be holding their own event about the clergy abuse initiative within the next few weeks. The report is still ongoing and the State Department of Justice encourages survivors of clergy and faith leader abuse to file a report at supportsurvivors.widoj.gov or by calling 1-877-222-2620. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout.
this past winter. The Wisconsin Department of Transportation is looking back on the use of salt on highways this past winter. Today, the agency released a report on the effectiveness of a rock salt alternative, brine. WRT reporter Heron Splinter has more. In the winter before last, Dane County spent $1.7 million on rock salt. But that number may be getting lower in the future. A new report from the Traffic Operations and Safety Laboratory at UW-Madison looks at the effectiveness of brine, a water and salt mixture that's sprayed onto roads as an alternative to rock salt. It has a higher concentration than the stuff you might use to pickle cucumbers. Highway departments across the state already use brine on roads before some storms come. But the new research from the UW lab confirms that brine is often better than hard road salt. The study showed that using brine instead of rock salt clears roads two hours quicker. And because trucks can drive faster while applying brine, some roads can be treated 30% faster. The DOT has been strategizing ways to reduce salt use for many years. This report just quantifies brine's effectiveness. Reducing salt use is important for cost and the environment. I spoke with Andy Bill, one of the scientists who conducted the study about the benefits. There's a lot less salt kind of bouncing off of the roadway onto neighboring, you know, uh, fields or, uh, you know, lawns or things of that sort. But then also that as that runoff occurs, we're not getting that regular, that salt into our, um, into our lakes and our streams and other, you know, even just groundwater with it. As a liquid, brine can also get into cracks and crevices better than a chunk of rock salt. And brine requires nearly a quarter less salt compared to rock but it requires its own specialized equipment. Right now, not every county in Wisconsin has the ability to make brine. Andy Bill. And they have to have a, a brine maker, which is going to, um, you can think about it as a, a big mixing bowl, right? So it's putting that salt and that water together to kind of mix it up with it. And then they need to have a special tank on their equipment. And then that tank is going to feed into basically kind of like a sprayer nozzles. Um, that, that spray down onto the roadway. Currently, at least 13 counties in the state have mixers, and many more are looking to buy one. Dane County is on the list to receive one this year. Bill also wanted to clear up a misconception about spraying brine. When people are driving behind these vehicles and they see liquid coming out of it, they, they think that there's just water going on the roadway. So it's like they're concerned that it will cause more crashes because you're putting water on a roadway that's already going to freeze, right? Um, and so there's been concerns over time that, that this liquid brine would cause more crashes or become more unsafe events than regular rock salt. And so we wanted to look at the friction values to be able to determine if that was true or not. We weren't seeing anything in the crash data, um, but we wanted to make sure we addressed this misconception and took a look at it. The study found that the brine-treated roads are safe. The method can, though, accelerate corrosion on vehicles, so it's best to avoid directly driving behind a truck spraying brine. An undercarriage wash for your car can also help reduce corrosion in the winter. As highway departments become more comfortable with brine, there's room to tinker with different formulas, including sometimes using rock salt. Bill says a veritable cookbook of formulae could help adjust to specific weather conditions. It would be nice to have like a, a recipe book basically for this. So you know that the winter storm is coming and you know that you're expected to have this temperature and this amount of snow 
Um, first of all, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> Things change on us. Um, but being able to like say, okay, this is what we should be putting out there and then having our storm fighters be ready to, to do that and, and be able to um, you know, implement the plan. For WORT, I'm Heron Splinter. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. A new report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan research group, shows that the state received significantly less pandemic-related aid from the federal government than other states. But is this necessarily a bad thing? WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Wisconsin Policy Forum Research Director Jason Stein to find out more. So, Jason, right out of the gate here, what is your newest report about and what did you find? Well, we looked at the federal pandemic aid that has come in to state and local governments, specifically the fiscal recovery funds that they have the most freedom from the federal government on how they can spend them. And what we essentially found is that Wisconsin has not received anything close to what uh, states have on average nationally. Um, But, you know, at the same time, Wisconsin has still received, you know, massive amounts of aid and is using these dollars a little differently than, than most other states are doing. And we could talk about that. And so sort of to begin, it seems like local governments here in Wisconsin got a pretty average amount of money, but the state as a whole lagged behind. Can you sort of explain to me why that is? Yep, and I think you're exactly right. It was really in terms of the aid to state governments, the American Rescue Plan Act aid to state governments that lagged. And the main reason was that mainly that aid was distributed according to unemployment in you know the number of unemployed people in each state in the final three months of 2020. And, you know, in Wisconsin, both pre-pandemic and during the pandemic, our unemployment rate has been lower than the national average. So, you know, that was the main reason why we didn't receive as much federal aid as a state. And, you know, so that's, that's not all bad, right? It's not a bad trade-off to get less federal aid, but to have lower unemployment. So it's, it's not necessarily something that we should be upset about, but I think it is somewhat surprising would be to many people just given the really massive amounts of federal aid that have come into the state you wouldn't necessarily intuitively think that like oh there's a lot more going to many other states 
And then when you look at it, we actually still have a, quite a bit of that ARPA money sitting in reserves at the moment as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Why aren't we spending that money and what could we be spending it on? I mean, the, the, the main reason um, that, a lot, that the ARPA money hasn't been, that most of it hasn't been spent is that uh, the state hasn't gotten its full payment. So um, most states, including Wisconsin, get their ARPA fiscal recovery funds in two payments. First was in May 2021, and the second should be in May of this year. So, you know, in some cases, some of that money has been allocated to a specific purpose. But, you know, since the state hasn't received it yet, it couldn't, you know, even if it had spent all of the money that we got in that first May 2021 payment, we'd still have, and we, we've spent a lot of it, but not all of it. And, you know, we'd still have half left to spend because we just haven't gotten that second half. How does it relate to the large budget surplus that was also announced this year that the state of Wisconsin is also sitting on? How do those two things relate to each other? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, for one, you know, the state budget surplus, some people think that that, I think some people have assumed that that includes federal money. It doesn't directly. Uh, There is an impact of this federal aid, which it is definitely, you know, supercharged the state's economy and caused, you know, tax collection, state tax collections to be higher. So that's how it sort of contributed to the surplus. Now, in terms of uh, how the federal money is getting used, states can use that federal money to uh, fill budget holes from their own tax revenues falling short because of the pandemic. You know, that hasn't happened in Wisconsin. Uh, our tax revenues have been very strong. And so uh, that, unlike a lot of states, we're not putting any of that ARPA money to balancing our state budget. And so, you know, essentially what that means is there's more available to spend on other priorities. And what uh, the Evers administration has done so far is prioritize uh, private businesses and nonprofit employers to a much greater degree than we've seen in, in most other states. So now looking at this report as a whole, what does it tell us about the state's current financial situation? Where are we sitting? Well, I mean, you know, one really big picture point to make is that we have not used this federal aid to shore up our ongoing budget. And so what that means is we're not looking, we won't be looking at a fiscal cliff down the line. You know, some states are using this, this one-time federal money to pay ongoing expenses they have in their budget. And so when this federal money runs out, they're potentially at risk. You know, if their tax revenues haven't rebounded enough, they're at risk of, of having a budget hole. You know, in Wisconsin, we're not using the money that way. So the next governor and legislature in January of 2023, they're not going to have to immediately plug any holes from this money. You know, they're they're going to be able to, you know, craft a budget um, that that is not going to have to, you know, they're not going to have to make uh, draconian cuts or something like that to be able to keep things balanced going forward. 
And Jason, do you have just any final thoughts of anything that uh, you'd like to share that we didn't touch on? Well, I mean, I think one of the big points of interest will be, you know, the state is using a lot of this money uh, to, to, to go directly to businesses and other, you know, employers like nonprofits. A significant amount is being, about $100 million is being put into uh, workforce innovation, uh, various uh, regional efforts around the state to meet local workforce needs. And so I think the question will be, you know, to what extent have, have businesses and other recipients, you know, put this money into things that would make them more productive? You know, if it, it, you know, to the extent that the money is just going to, you know, keep businesses that are struggling afloat, um, it, you know, it, it obviously may have a positive effect, but it may be, you know, not really change our long-term prospects, but, you know, some other businesses and organizations may be able to use at least some of this money to make investments, whether it's, you know, in equipment or training or for their workers or what have you that might, you know, affect the state's competitiveness going forward. So I think, you know, that's an open question to see what happens, but given that we are putting more money into the sort of private sector side of the equation, will this, you know, provide some kind of benefit for the state in the years to come? I think it's, that's an open question, but I think it's, it's an interesting thing to watch. I've been talking with Jason Stein, the research director at the Wisconsin Policy Forum and author of their newest report, which you can read online on the Wisconsin Policy Forum website. Jason, thank you so much for talking with me here today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Cardinal Call investigates the lack of indigenous students who attend UW-Madison. Wildlife Weekly gets into the mud with a rare animal that's a link between fish and amphibians. And Radio Astronomy prepares for a gargantuan comet as it passes through the solar system. But now we'll we'll take a quick break and check in on some world headlines back in a flash. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call presents an excerpt from the Daily Cardinal's podcast, The Student Dive. Podcast co-host Honor Durham spoke with news writer Claire Laliberter, La Liberté, about a lack of Indigenous students attending UW-Madison. I think I understood the systemic issues that prevent Native Americans from accessing higher education, just like purely from like a logistical standpoint. Like I understand the, the average income, for instance, of a Native family is lower, but it was interesting to talk with the students that I spoke with and be able to like discover more of the nuance to that. Hello and welcome. 
welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. As part of our action project, campus news writer Claire Laliberte set out to answer a question. Why do Native American students make up only 0.2% of UW-Madison's student population? For the most recent episode of our news podcast, The Student Dive, our co-host Honor Durham talked with Claire about the article she wrote. We're bringing you that conversation today. Thanks so much for being here, Claire. Thank you for having me on. So can you give a brief overview of your story and why you decided to write about this topic? Uh, yeah, so, well, earlier in the year, um, actually the first piece that I wrote for the Cardinal back in September was about uh, the demographics of the freshman class, and I had pointed out and done a little bit of, of commentary on how they did not release in that demographic report. They did not mention Native American students, and I suggested perhaps the reason for that is because there just aren't many. So for the um, Identity Action Project, I wanted to do like a, a follow-up on that and go more in-depth onto why they excluded those numbers, why they're so low, what the factors are that might lead to that, and what can be done sort of at this university to, to rectify that. So I just kind of wanted to cast a light on that. So you interviewed a freshman named Grace Lakowski for the story, and can you tell me a little bit more about what she said to you for this piece? Yeah, so Grace is a citizen of the Menominee Nation, and she is pretty outspoken about indigenous issues on this campus and um, about like student life and that sort of thing. And so we talked and she told me about how she finds that like, and this is something I heard from Ezra, the other person that I interviewed for this article, I heard from both of them that one big thing that they sort of take issue with is that Native Americans, not just at UW-Madison, but you know, for within the context of the university are sort of put into a box or put into like like Native faculty. They, they work on recruiting na- Native faculty to teach Native American studies classes, but not really to teach like, you know, math or like zoology or whatever, because there's sort of like a an expected role that an Indigenous person fills that, they, that Grace uh, talked about. So Grace and I talked about how about that, about how Native Americans are sort of boxed into a certain place on campus and how that can be expanded and how non-Native students can be more exposed to Native culture in every aspect of their education and about how the lack of community sort of perpetuates that cycle of Native students not necessarily wanting to come here and feel so disconnected from their culture. Right. So kind of uh, bouncing off that, can you explain why why those who have Native backgrounds often struggle to access higher education in general? Well, there's a lot of systemic reasons for that. A lot of it has to do with, with poverty and with, with privilege and with the, the socioeconomic situations that a lot of Native Americans are in. Because on reservations, it's, you know, it's no secret. A lot, most people know that infrastructure is terrible. There's not a lot of opportunity. There's not a lot of room for upward mobility. And further, like, in addition to that, and if you, you know, if you read my piece, you can see Ezra uh, spoke on this a lot about how, like, there are strong ties keeping Native Americans on reservations, family, culture, like, all of that stuff. And uh, so sociologically, or I should say economically and, like, logistically, it's challenging for them to make it to higher education just purely because of the, you know, systemic issues that have placed them in poverty and in, in with lack of access to those resources, but also, like, Socially and culturally, there are many, many reasons that a Native person might want to stay on their reservation with their with their family and with their culture and their people instead of coming to a place like Madison. Do you know how the university's Native population compares with the Native demographics in the state of Wisconsin? If the enrollment at this university was like exactly proportionate 
to the native population in the state, it would be about like six or seven times higher. So what programs does the university offer to help indigenous and low income students get financial aid for higher education? Yeah, so there's a lot of programs. Uh, there's a number of programs within the state of Wisconsin that they do for Wisconsin resident students that are from low income slash marginalized backgrounds. Uh, there's Bucky's tuition promise. If, if a household in Wisconsin makes less than a certain margin, I think it's like $60,000 or something, then they their tuition is completely covered and fees and stuff. And then Badger Promise has to do with like first generation college students in Wisconsin receive two to four semesters of financial aid, depending on their eligibility for other stuff. I'm not really sure, it's, it's kind of like complicated, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a number of stuff offering, there's a number of programs offering financial aid to in-state students particularly. However, like for indigenous students in all the research that I did, I found that like all of the programs for indigenous students were like, exclusive and or like very specific like it would be like one and a half semesters of aid for like a student from like northwestern wisconsin pursuing like electrical engineering or something it's like who falls into this category you know this is like the so in my to my understanding i don't think there's a huge variety of programs that offer that aid to like just any any indigenous student i think that you have to fall into certain criteria whether that be financially or in terms of what you want to pursue um and so i think yeah that's something that could absolutely be improved on how do you think the university can improve general student perspectives on Native American culture? Do you think history classes are doing a good job right now? And if not, what do you think should be improved? Well, I think that you could very easily attend the school and do all four years of your education without ever really talking about Native people in your classes. And I think that's that's something we should be working away from, especially as the university wants to, like, you know, do more things to acknowledge Native Americans, like land acknowledgments and, like, the Ho-Chunk flag raising. I think that it's, like... Education is one of the most concrete ways that you can advance like people's general perceptions of Native Americans and like like awareness of and knowledge of and like understanding of not just natives but different cultures as well. And I think that kind of grouping all Native American history and education classes or um, like all of those topics being taught sort of only in classes designed to teach them like. You can, again, make it through all four years without taking one of those classes. I think that the most important thing for UW to do would be to sort of to work on more cross-disciplinary involvement of Native individuals, of Native history, you know, because Native Americans and Native peoples all over the world have had extremely important roles in every field of, of everything, you know, academically. And failing to, to, like, talk about that is doing a disservice to people here because, like, you know, at the end of the day, this is that is where we are. This is the land that we occupy. And like when we see, for instance, I discussed this in my article, when we see issues within the American Indian Studies Department with faculty that are spreading misinformation or are not really um, doing justice to the topics that they're covering, we that's like perpetuating ignorance. And that's not good for anybody, regardless of their race or status or whatever. That's like everybody benefits from more open knowledge. Did you learn anything new from writing this article that you want to share that you haven't shared already? Um, yeah, I think I understood the systemic issues that prevent Native Americans from accessing higher education, just like purely from like a logistical standpoint. Like I understand the, the average income, for instance, of a Native family is lower, but it was interesting to talk with the students that I spoke with and be able to like discover more of the nuance to that. It, I imagine it would be hard to leave your hometown and go somewhere where they don't know how to make the foods that you grew up with or like where they don't tell the same stories or, you know, that kind of thing. Like, I thought that that was very enlightening, sort of. That was very, that was eye-opening to me. 
so yeah, that's something that I think everybody can sort of take away from what I what I wrote about. And when we think about uh, the action project that just came out in general, is there anything you learned about yourself and your own identity while working on this piece? Yeah, I think that something that I, I take away from everything that I write or everything that I do that involves like, you know, groups that are different from myself, I think it's important sort of to develop your own sense of identity in communion with other people, you know? I think that like, being able to develop my concept of who I am while thinking about like, okay, so like where where am I from and who else lives here and who else is like has occupied this land? Developing one's own sense of identity is sort of like a huge. Um, it, just the web gets larger the more that you, the more that you learn and the more that you grow because you realize like, historically you're connected to so many different people and places and things and like, contemporarily you are affecting so many different people and places and things and yeah I would say that just like developing more self-awareness about where my identity fits into like the big tapestry of people that exists is like, you know, it's an important step in everybody's self growth. Thank you so much for being here, Claire. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out the entire episode featuring stories from our action project on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website. This Thursday, we will publish our final print edition of the spring semester and this academic year. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg shares the story of a unique visitor to the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Rehabilitation Center, a gentle mudskipper. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about the salamanders of Wisconsin. I think salamanders are pretty amazing species, and we don't talk about them very often because there aren't very many that seem to be admitted in our field. We know that they are very prevalent throughout the state in different habitats, but salamanders are just very unique. They're kind of ancient, and they're cryptic, and they're in places that are hard to find, and I don't think that people stumble upon them very often. Most commonly, we're going to see the eastern tiger salamander into our facility, but we have also seen blue spotted salamander and in a momentous occasion this week was our first ever mud puppy admission mud puppy aka the water dog if you've ever heard of that which i'm not really sure they look like a dog but they're super cute and it's just one of those things that you know even after many many years of rehabilitation there's still days in this field where you are surprised and you're like oh whoa, this is a new species that I haven't really worked with before. We are licensed for amphibian species here in the state, having worked with a good number of them, but mud puppies were just one that we haven't really had any experience. So then we had to look up a lot of information about mud puppies and what they need for their habitat requirements and how we could even potentially help it with its medical needs. So a little background about this mud puppy. He was actually found in the Wisconsin Dells area. So that's Sauk County, north of us. 
And it was a an animal that had accidentally got caught while someone was fishing. So fishing recreation definitely um, is going to cause some complications when there are hooks and fishing line involved. And sometimes there's bycatch, right? So it's something that you didn't intend to catch, but you happened to catch. So this uh, little mud puppy friend who's just like, you know, I don't know, maybe about two palms of your hand width, uh, maybe long, probably about 12 inches long or so, he was caught and was hooked in the mouth. And so there was a little bit of a struggle to try to get the hook out. But then the person noticed there was another piece of fishing line going further back into the mouth and was really concerned about the salamander. And he had right to be concerned because when it was admitted to the wildlife center, we had x-rays taken right away. And lo and behold, there's a whole nother hook and jig that is inside the mouth cavity that had kind of reached out through the left side of its gills. Now its gills are incredibly important for them to be able to survive. Those gills are bushy, bright red color, which is so cool to see in the light. And that's how they're able to breathe. And they are underwater. They're fully obligate water, you know, aquatic species. And they also don't do very well out of water. And so we had to think outside the box a little bit, like how do you take a hook and, and, you know, line out of a mud puppy in surgery if it has to breathe underwater. It's not the same as you know, putting in an endotracheal tube to put a dog or cat under anesthesia or any of the other wild species that we, you know, anesthetize. But there's a really cool technique, which our uh, partners at UW-Madison, the zoo medicine folks, their veterinarians have worked with a number of mud puppies because they have some in captivities at other zoos or other places that they work at. And so they have done underwater anesthesia. So that to me is just the coolest thing to be able to, you know, anesthetize this mud puppy uh, so that it can't feel us extracting the hook and to be able to do it in such a specialized manner that it survives through the surgery. So that is what happened. The mud puppy did have it successfully extracted, but um, I'm sad to say that unfortunately a couple days later, he he did not really thrive in rehabilitation, um, which was no fault really of our rehabilitators because we were working with mud puppy experts to figure out water quality testing and uh, making sure he had the right foods to eat, which is normally, uh, it's gonna be fish. So a couple of minnows generally every few days is good for them. But also there are other species that they would eat in the wild like insects and mollusks and other amphibians actually, uh, crustaceans like crayfish. So there's different varieties, but they definitely eat mostly protein. And then we wanted to make sure that he had an adequate setup with the right temperature. Uh, usually it has to be under 68 degrees Fahrenheit. They prefer very cold waters. So we got all of the right setup and everything, but you know, being that we don't know how long the hook had been embedded in the tissue and it had gone through, you know, multiple areas within the mouth, you know, there's definitely at risk for infection to set in very quickly because, you know, you've got something piercing the skin and then they're underwater in a lake or a stream, which has tons of bacteria and things teeming in it. So, you know, obviously we got them on antibiotics right away, but it doesn't mean that they're able to necessarily cope with that type of infection. And they are very susceptible to infections, whether it's fungal or other, uh, like bacterial, just because they're very sensitive species. Salamanders really take in their surroundings, meaning that, you know, we have to wear gloves so that our oils don't touch their skin. They're sensitive to metal contents in the waterways. They're also highly susceptible to pesticides or other other chemicals that are used for certain things. So if you don't know, there's a 
an actual uh, lampricide called TFM that is something that is used because the fishing industry has pests of lamprey larvae. And so what they'll do is use this chemical to kill off the larva, but it actually ends up also killing off mud puppies because, you know, they absorb those elements. So if you imagine a fishing hook and lure, well, it's made of metal and there's other things. Usually there's like a lead jig or anything like that. You know, we hoped we got enough blood that we were trying to send in a lead sample to our state lab to see if we can get some results back. Uh, We have not gotten them yet, but knowing that heavy metals can leach right through their skin, that also could have played a contributing factor in him not making it a few days later which was really hard for us because we got such a cool species in. But it also highlights the sad parts of rehabilitation. Like we went through like above and beyond the most intricate care for this mud puppy we possibly could with specialized surgeons and everybody. I mean, we were holding a little Doppler underwater to hear their heartbeat the whole surgery. We we definitely wanted this mud puppy to, to hopefully make it, but just kind of sh- goes to show that when you have complex surgeries or complex injuries like this, uh, especially for those animals that have been experiencing it, you know, we put that kind of litter or garbage or other things in the wild, and it really does harm our wildlife that we're sharing the earth with. So, you know, for us, it's really, really hard to to say that we we weren't able to do something, even though we feel like it was a really good case to try. So, you know, you might be out and about in the summer. You might be walking in a stream or nearby or, you know, turning under rocks or debris or wood or something, and maybe you'll find a mud puppy or another salamander. Leave it be. You know, we always say, let them live their life and thrive and unless they need any kind of actual intervention like this one did uh, leave them alone in the environment don't take them home as pets uh, salamanders are incredibly sensitive and like I said very difficult to take care of in general and we want to make sure that we are really advocating for keeping our wildlife wild so that we can appreciate them and so that hopefully their populations stay in Wisconsin, uh, knowing that salamanders are having a tough time all over the United States. There are some areas in different states where actually our mud puppy friends are either threatened, endangered, or extirpated, which is really sad. And in Illinois is one of those that it is very low populations. So, you know, who knows exactly how many are in Wisconsin since we don't really keep track, but it's definitely a cool species if you find one or you get to see them. And, you know, just Man, it's it's cool to be able to say that we got to at least try to treat a mud puppy at our wildlife center um, and know that, yes, we do work with special species, and that's pretty cool. So if you ever find a wild animal that is in need, whether it's a mud puppy or any of the other seven different salamander species that are here in the state, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. You can also send us a picture by emailing us at wildlife at giveshelter.org and visit us on the website if you've got any questions about wild animals here coming into the summer. Uh, That's www.giveshelter.org. Thanks for listening on WORT. This has been your Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. No, it's not Armageddon, but the solar system is being visited by the largest comet ever observed by people. On this week's Radio Astronomy, host Melissa Morris talks about exactly how big this comet actually is and how we even know when it's buzzing by our neighborhood.
Humans have been on the lookout for comets in our night sky for hundreds of years, but a recent discovery has uncovered what is very likely the largest comet observed in all of recorded history. Hello everybody and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Melissa Morris and today we're going to talk about the giant, the enormous, the gargantuan comet Bernardinelli bursting. Recent observations of this comet with the Hubble Space Telescope have allowed astronomers to see just how large this comet really is. Before we dive into specific details, though, let's talk about what exactly a comet even is. To do this, let's think about what our solar system looks like. We have the brilliant and bedazzling sun in the center, surrounded in fairly close orbit by the rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, that's us, and Mars. A bit further out, we have what's known as the asteroid belt that orbits between the rocky planets and the closest gas giant, Jupiter. Asteroids and comets are not the same. Asteroids are essentially giant space rocks made up of mostly heavier solid elements that are left over from the formation of our solar system. Beyond the asteroid belt, as you travel further and further from the sun, you begin to find gas giants of our solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. On the very edge of the solar system is where you'll find Pluto in what is known as the Kuiper Belt, a ring of icy objects that, like the asteroid belt, are left over from the early formation of the solar system. Beyond all of these is what's known as the Oort Cloud. This is where most of the comets in our solar system come from. You can think of the Oort Cloud as a giant, fluffy shell of material that extends incredibly far from the sun. Some estimates have it extending to as far as a quarter of the way to the nearest star to us, Alpha Centauri. Objects in the Oort Cloud are still orbiting the sun, but their orbits don't look like those of the planets. Instead, these objects spend most of their time in the Oort cloud. When they approach the sun, they get faster and faster until they quickly swing around the sun only to be flung back out to the Oort cloud where they will spend thousands to millions of years before they approach the sun again. Because the Oort cloud is so far away from the heat of the sun, most of the objects within it are made up of a combination of rockier metals as well as icy materials that would melt if they came much closer to the sun. Think of what a typical comet looks like to us here on Earth. A fuzzy point of light with a long glowing tail behind it. This glowing tail exists because, as the comet gets closer to the sun, some of the material that would be solid at the cool temperatures of the Oort cloud begin to melt and evaporate, being shed by the comet completely and forming a glowing tail. Because comets are made of so much icy material, as well as some rockier material and a wee bit of organic material, they can be thought of as dirty snowballs flying around space. Like most comets, Comet Bernardinelli bursting is thought to have come out of the Oort cloud. What makes it special is that it is 50 times larger than the average comet core that we see, clocking in at roughly 80 miles across. For comparison, that's larger than the entire state of Rhode Island. Additionally, astronomers estimate that this comet's last appearance in the inner solar system was roughly 3 million years ago. While this comet is indeed gigantic, it is unfortunately really difficult to actually see. On the comet's closest approach to Earth in 2031, it will be roughly 1 billion miles away from us. That's about a tenth of the distance between the Earth and the Sun, and we'll be unable to see it with the naked eye. Well, if this comet's so dim and far away, you may be wondering, 
how did we even find it to begin with? Well, this was a bit of a stroke of luck. Modern day astronomy involves carrying out many surveys of the entire sky so that we can observe large populations of stars or galaxies or whatever else we're trying to study. One such survey is known as the Dark Energy Survey, which aims to observe millions of galaxies in order to study dark energy. They do this using a 4-meter telescope at the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory in Chile. In their images, they found quite a few objects that are actually within our solar system, including this comet. Since the initial discovery, many follow-up observations have been taken, including the Hubble Space Telescope observations that allowed astronomers to make a measurement of how large the comet's core is. While the discovery of this comet is indeed exciting, it begs the question of what other colossal comets may be hiding out on the edges of the Oort cloud, slowly making their way back towards the inner solar system where we'll be able to observe them. Before we wrap up, a quick announcement. This summer, Washburn Observatory will be open to the public once again for observing every other Wednesday, weather permitting. So join us to glance out at the cosmos with this fantastic telescope. We're scheduled to open tomorrow, but keep an eye on that weather because we'll have to close if it does end up raining. That's all for Radio Astronomy today, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and I'm wishing you a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's live local news at 6. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WRT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Nuestro Patio. Good night.